0: everybody. Thank you for coming. If we may take a moment uh, to offer a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, here on the Sunday of Passion, the Sunday of Palms, we gather again in your name, celebrating the coming of your Son into his kingdom and glory, that we may follow his example and live as fully and boldly as he has taught us to. We look forward to celebrating this week, to agonizing on Friday, and rejoicing on Sunday. In your precious name, amen. Well, here we are to week four of Swords into the Plowshares, and just to give a little recap, uh, what begins several weeks ago in the mid-1600s following the Reformation and the dividing up of Europe with eyes, hungry eyes, looking at a, uh, to their perspective, virgin continent, irrespective of the indigenous peoples, a new Eden might be realized here in North America. The passage from Isaiah, uh, where one day all nations will turn their swords into plowshares, is the underwriting theme, and this statue, which if you've ever been to the United Nations, is actually outside of the UN. It is a masterful, if immense, Russian-inspired uh, piece of sculpture. And here are other depictions. Now, following uh, the multitude of experiments here in North America, whether it was uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony down to Georgia and in between, that there were a variety of... of Tryouts of something that was new in concept, and that was freedom of conscience, freedom to worship. Because back in in Europe, uh, the model, in fact, globally, the model was that whatever the princ- whatever the principality, whatever the prince, whatever the king decreed, that was the religion of the land. But here, we had a, a series of fits and starts, uh, beginning in the 1640s, of in writing. Saying that all, all religions, even if they weren't the orthodox one of the uh, of the king or the proprietor, would be respected. So, last time we got up to around the time of the American Revolution. So, where we begin today is post-revolution, but pre the Constitution, where. One of the freedoms that we've been talking about that we might take for granted today as a done deal is still very much in flux. And this correspondence is from George Washington. Um, It's uh, when he was leaving the Continental Army, and he sent a letter to all the presidents of the various states. And for those uh, who know Washington, he definitely ascribed to a higher power um, a a divine providence, but he never named it as such. He never called it God. (coughs) But at the same time, uh, he did profess uh, a great indebtedness to an almighty divine author, as he puts it. Now, what's interesting at this time frame as the revolution is concluding but before the, the Constitution happens, that the individual states were themselves uh, debating the role of government and religion, and it differed from state to state to state. And in fact, uh, Washington himself, two years later, in October of, of 1785, sent a, a re- reply to his neighbor, George Mason, where uh, Mason was arguing that the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, ought to pay the Anglican uh, priests there, as part of the gov- the it was uh, for de- uh, for generations uh, it was called father nurture nurture Father was the policy whereby the state would pay uh, the priesthood, whether it was the Catholics before or the Anglicans uh, after Henry the eighth and that policy was enforced in most of the states, most of the colonies, up until the revolution so well today we might assume that there was a linear progression of thought and, and action to our second amendment, and uh, these w- we talk about the separation of church and state, but truly it's uh, the, the Congress uh, shall make no law uh, the forgive me it, right the establishment clause establishment. Um, So, during this interim period, if you will, that it was a hot topic, um, not just in Virginia, uh, where Washington is rebutting a little bit his his neighbor George Mason, but also uh, uh, agreeing with them elsewhere in the the correspondence. But it picks up steam in 1786 um, in Virginia, among other places, where Patrick Henry has put forward a motion once again to have Virginia pay the clergy salary. So this right here is Mr. James Madison uh, who was in the assembly in Virginia and he articulated uh, very forcefully that uh, the state should stay out of it because uh, even within the the Christian faith that uh, one might be preferred over another. Now, this meeting house, except for what's now New Mexico, this is the oldest continuous house of worship in North America. It was erected in 1685 or 1695. It's a Quaker meeting, Society of Friends. And if you can imagine that the first wave of Welsh Quakers that came over with Penn's invitation erected this. Um, and as the colony of of Pennsylvania uh, developed and flourished, that uh, this was the first stopping point west of uh, the new city of Philadelphia. But what's most important about it is that okay, what's most important for this topic is that uh, of the generations of Quakers, the families that worshiped there and belonged there, that if you can imagine that a third generation Quaker who was born in the early 1700s and although, although he was married twice, was childless. Um, come the revolution he was in charge of the Committee of Suffering, which was the title of last week, which we kind of ran along on. The Committee of Suffering during the American Revolution was the colonial effort to try and mitigate the circumstances that uh, the people, uh, whether it's New Jersey or Pennsylvania, were experiencing due to the ravages of the, uh, the Armies moving back and forth. And so they would petition to each side, whether it was uh, Cornwallis or before him, uh, heavens. Uh, no, no, Braddock was 1755. Um, the brothers, Howe, uh, General Howe uh, on the British side or Washington on the colonial side, um, for redress and some kind of uh, payment for. Uh, the in, in, things that they would endure so this one gentleman, his name was uh, Jacob Jones, third generation uh, living in this region it fell upon him to police the meeting when the young men, as the revolution was hotting up in 1775 and uh, they were tempted to join one cause or another, mostly joining the colonial and Jacob Jones had the the distinct um, unsavory duty of reading out uh, two of his own nephews from the meeting um, because they'd signed on to join the militia. Uh, one of his nephews who was read out a gentleman, a gentleman named Algernon Jones or Albert Algernon. Take three Algernon Roberts um, later became executor for his estate. So so they made up after the revolution, <coughs> but. It was a, a tough time uh, to, to live your principles, and as last week we were talking about some of the, many of the uh, communities that tried to, uh, in a hermetic way, live out their faith here in North America. Uh, what's revealing about the, the Quaker experience in the colony of Pennsylvania is that uh, even as, at first, for less than a decade, that they had the, the notion of having uh, a place to themselves, and having their own laws and such that that fell apart all too quickly for them and they had to live their life in constant contact with the larger world. So whereas Ephrata uh, and some of the uh, Moravian places were uh, way out in the wilderness and otherwise uh, interfaced with the natives and uh, maybe trappers, the the Welsh Quakers and the, the Germans in uh, Germantown, the Mennonites, that they had a a constant friction with the larger world. And for the the Quakers, who would not take an oath and uh, preferred preferred pacifism, um, it was a struggle. And that struggle continued even after the American Revolution had concluded because as the nation is heading to civil war, the Quaker College in Haverford recognized that of its 51 students, that uh, half of them wanted to run off and join the Union Army, um, that they had to give guidance. So it was kind of a punt as these things go, uh, but it was in recognition of the, the larger issues at play and also uh, that young men uh, w- want to be part of something larger than themselves. So skipping, if we will, through history All of this, for me, uh, comes to an almost present tense head In the latter half of the 20th century As uh, ideals are rubbing up against reality And for those of you who don't recognize this gentleman His name is Daniel Berrigan, he was a Jesuit priest And along with, this is 1966, uh, when he was still uh, part of the Jesuit order. Um, However, come 1968, in May of 1968, along with his brother Philip and seven others, uh, some of them clergy, present, some of them past clergy, uh, they broke into a selective service office in Catonsville, Maryland, and took 358 draft cards and proceeded to uh, sing the Lord's Prayer and burn the draft cards for which they then became the object of scrutiny by the Federal Bureau of Investigation and four of them disappeared in plain sight and were the uh, subject of uh, J. Edgar Hoover's wrath. But all this in their estimation was an expression of uh, nonviolence against the violent situation that was the American involvement in South Asia, specifically Vietnam, and the draft that was the order of the day, so Daniel on the right, his brother Philip on the left now all of them were tried whether they were. in in hand, or not, in Baltimore in 1968. And the opinion, as some of you probably recall, was quite divided, including people in the streets chanting for their summary execution, for the burning of draft cards. Now, again, in 17th century Europe, it was impossible to express a discordant point of view compared to what your uh, your regent or regnant would wish uh, because you needed the protection of a king or principality or such, or duke. But here, by the late 20th century, even as uh, freedom of expression and freedom of... Uh, Dis- disagreeing with the pa- power structure, it is now permissible, even as we see these two former priests uh, in prison. This is their momentary exchange while they were both uh, at a prison in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, Daniel served 18 months of uh, a sentence, and I forget what Philip did. Ultimately, they were both released, but they continue to cause great deal of uh, irritation to the federal government. But more poignantly comes the story of a Presbyterian cleric who provides a safe haven in a moment of dire need. I should have made mention uh, at the top when James Madison was passionately advocating that there was no place for the state in paying for salaries for clergy, that the two examples that he continued to cite were, one, the treatment of Baptists in Virginia, and two, the treatment of Presbyterians, uh, neither of which uh, found favor with the Anglican remnants there. Meanwhile, come April of 1975, uh, Saigon is a fervent place, as the power structure is about to change radically, and of the 25,000 estimated Amerasian children, as well as the tens of thousands of uh, dependents, um, whether Vietnamese or what was that number? Twen- are uh, between 22 and 25,000 Amerasian children. Ooh. Yeah. Um, so Uh, the recognition that this was going to be necessary uh, to evacuate people was apparent for a while, and the U.S. Navy had stationed itself, but at the same time, the collapse was uh, all too quick. But at this point still, in in late April, it was somewhat orderly as people were looking for an exit and bringing their luggage and their children. But as the days dwindled, in April, the anxiety rose, as did uh, the tensions and the copters. This is obviously before the the uh, boat lift and it came a point and some of you might actually remember Operation Pedro Pan um, in Cuba. It was uh, an air and boat lift to uh, evacuate any and all children that uh, they could get out before Castro's forces took over there. Well, likewise, in South Vietnam, it it was a passionate time as people wanted to exit. But we pause for a moment to consider our good fortune here and the New Eden that In fits and starts, that we have established and reinforced over the decades, over the centuries here in America. Now, Robert Bull, who later went on to great prominence within the the Presbyterian Church, uh, was, I believe this was his first pastorate after he got his doctorate. And he also served on the board for the Pearl S. Buck Foundation which uh, was a provider. It ran several orphanages in Southeast Asia. It had an annual budget of $30,000. So in the wee-wee hours of April 28, 1975, Dr. Boll gets a call, ultimately from Guam, uh, but it was, uh, the source was the great need, the growing need in Saigon, and the question was, how many can you take? And in the moment, at 2 a.m., he said, as many as you, uh, you can send. And by dawn, there were several more phone calls that had come through, and things were unclear, but he, he essentially gave an open uh, invitation to any and all Vietnamese nationals uh, that the armed forces could bring all the way to the east coast of the U.S. This is in suburban, Pennsylvania, uh, suburban Philadelphia. So it, it's a modest, if pleasant, uh, suburban Presbyterian church, nowhere near as large as CPC, but this is Dr. Bowl on the uh, right and parish building on the left. So within 56 hours or so of the wake-up call that it got, the first of the refugees began to arrive. Now, as mentioned, the U.S. Navy had positioned itself off of South Vietnam to receive uh, its own aircraft. However, the uh, South Vietnamese Air Force uh, commandeered all of its own aircraft, and came out as well, including this Chinook 47, which was attempting to land on the USS Kirk, which is a frigate uh, that had a a small deck that could handle more like a Huey. It couldn't handle something with twin rotors. If you can imagine the pilot who had his wife, three kids, including, I think, an eight-month-old and 40-some people, he hovered the helicopter, dwindling on fuel, over the fantail and everybody jumped out or was thrown out onto the deck as seamen caught. Everybody. The co-pilot got out, then the pilot doffed his suit, and as the 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 helicopter was ditching, uh, he was able to leap free and was rescued. Meanwhile, the chief engineer for the USS Kirk described it as well as one of the seamen. And again, for me, I'm blessed to have had an absolutely bland, uh, normal American childhood where all this was mediated through the television until uh, people who were very short by comparison um, and polite and dark-haired arrived to my suburban church. Um, And that's where the connection was made between the events on television and the larger world around me. Again, this is just an indication of the the mass of humanity and all that was entailed in trying to address the needs of a country that was collapsing on itself and did not know what to expect Over 90 helicopters, South Vietnamese helicopters, uh, came out to the U.S. ships, and there was just no room for them. So once the the people were offloaded, the copters were pushed into the sea to accommodate the next one that could land. And all this was because the lives were more precious than the materiel and all this is happening October 20 er, I'm sorry April 29th April 30th 1975 So meanwhile back in suburban suburban Philadelphia Dr. Bowl has the open invitation but he doesn't know how many to expect and ultimately 83 arrive including 27 orphans and most of them had no idea where their connected family might have been if they got out at all. Some, as this child, had only dog tags to give any indication of uh, who they might be connected to. And of course, North America in April is a little bit cooler than they were used to in Vietnam this is old newspaper clippings so again until american until experiments on north america happened with this idea of guaranteeing religious freedom to the least among us the the mantra the mindset the the only model that existed was a top down uh, your religion is decided for you. And while, well, yes, there were open cities, Istanbul or Constantinople, um, or other places that uh, the, the power that be gave some allowance to a minority perspective that they could practice so long as they, d- they didn't interfere, that for the first time, an idea took root here in North America that all, all religions, all expressions of faith Uh, were deemed uh, worthy and that the state could not and should not interfere. So, backing up to the presidency, the beginning presidency of George Washington, who earlier had penned, you know, some private correspondences as well as uh, the public letter to the various governors um, as the revolution was ending. He assumes the presidency in April of 1789. And later that fall into the January of 1790, that for the first time, American Catholics are uh, petitioning the pope for their own bishop and uh, that conference happens in London. And so from London, the newly elected American bishop for the American Catholics writes a letter to the new president asking if Catholics will be afforded the ability to practice their own religion. Because at this point, the Bill of Rights um, is under discussion, but it, it has not been passed. So, in March of 1790, the President Washington writes to Bishop John Carroll, who by this point is back to Baltimore, that um, he is glad to report that all religions, including papists, not his term, but uh, that all religions uh, are welcomed so long as uh, they accord other people with the same respect that they wish to receive themselves. In, In depth, here's a little bit more of what he has to say in the moment as... He's responding to a query from a constituency Can we practice our own religion? And he underscores that yes, you can. Meanwhile, Providence, Rhode Island, which is the site of the oldest uh, Jewish congregation in America, as well as the oldest synagogue. Uh, this particular structure being built in 1763, Toro, T-U-O-R-O, Toro Congregation, um, that they too are seeking confirmation from the new president, and this is the first time, this is first president that these United States has ever seen. And again, the model up until these American experiments in various colonies has been that the top decides So here, as the American experiment in democracy is happening afresh, that the congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, writes to President Washington to ask, are we okay? And here's a sense of what Newport looked like at the time. Just a little barrier island. So Moses sixes, who was named as the warden. He was the one responsible for writing to the president. And with a little bit of flourish, uh, he offers his well wishes on behalf of the congregation for this new president. But again, the under underlying reason for the correspondence is, can you tell us that, yes, we can practice our religion and... Uh, do it free of interference from the state. Washington writes back, reflecting some of the flowery flowery language of the initial letter, but as with the Roman Catholics, President Washington says with uh, an emphatic flourish that yes, absolutely, that the sons of Abraham are welcomed as full members of this democracy to practice their religion as they would see fit. Now, every August 19th at this congregation in Newport, this letter is read aloud uh, to a standing room only. Oop, didn't get my shadow there correctly. Um, And it is part of their civic pride, Uh, both in Newport and for the congregation. Just imagine that every August 19th, if you happen to be up in Newport, uh, that you can squeeze in and hear this original letter from Washington read that emphasizes uh, that the sons of Abraham are full members of the American democratic experience Meanwhile, I had to include this because it was the only photo I could find of of the brave pilot. The gentleman on the right is Ba Engoya, excuse me, Engoyen, and his that's his wife No, NHO. And he was the pilot of the Chinook 47, um, who hovered while his wife and family were able to escape out the back onto the fantail and then he successfully was fished out after he ditched the the copter. So, something about this particular statue obviously resonates for me, that's why I included it in so many of of the uh, various iconic things to do with this talk. I loved loved the, the musculature and the forcefulness that is required of uh, the iron forger, as he's beating that sword into a plowshare. Meanwhile, again, with hope, we all want for our experiment in democracy, our experiment in pluralism, our experiment in respecting God's creation and our fellow man as a fellow child of God, uh, that it might allow us to enter into this peaceable kingdom. And as mentioned to Chris as I was starting, T-U, and it's got a a unique kind of accent which my graphic program couldn't duplicate. T-U space D-O is the phonetic version of the Vietnamese word for freedom. And so for those, for the 83 that arrived to Dr. Bowles' congregation. That was the largest single contingent in that wave of thousands that arrived to the U.S. Um, They were dispersed. um, You know, there were efforts to try and reconnect family with family because they just landed in Guam or Hawaii or uh, Pendleton, California. Um, And it took a while for people to uh, find out where other family who'd gotten out would be but the largest single contingent was welcomed by a Presbyterian congregation in suburban Philadelphia on uh, May 1st, 1975. Meanwhile, Dr. Boll, uh went on not only to be the convener of the 1993 Presbyterian Church USA, but he is now the board president for the Princeton Seminary. Um, so something about answering that phone call in the wee wee hours and saying, Yes. Oh, and he blew his budget. He, he, didn't, ask, he didn't ask his session um, in the moment. He, I mean, he rang them the following morning, um, but both the board that he sat on for the Pearl S. Buck Foundation and its $30,000 budget, and his, his congregation's budget were completely swamped by 83 people and all of the attendant costs, especially when you realize that in 1975, if you were wanting to call Guam or Hawaii it was $12 a minute. And so, whether it was him or any of the refugees trying to find out who's where, it was into the hundreds of thousands of dollars that the congregation absorbed. And yes, there were donations that came in to help. But it was a profound time uh, for that community. And I had a beautiful quotation from, oh, it's it's on the sheet, from... uh, one of, the, one of the 83, that uh, the, the love that he felt, God's love, um, is something that sustains him to this day. So, questions? Comments? We have a microphone here, right at the center table.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to remember that the uh, the lust for freedom was so great during the exodus from Vietnam. There's a story of a South Vietnamese pilot who took a Cessna 150 that if you and I were sitting in it, we would be shoulder to shoulder, yeah. put his wife and several children, they actually stuffed the babies into the tail cone. Mm-hmm. They flew out. He contacted a U.S. aircraft carrier. And... Uh, At that point, they had a a wire catch screen, Mm -hmm. and he managed, struggling, running out of fuel, to place that 150 on that aircraft carrier just above stall speed and was caught by that, um, that net. And he and his wife and, like I said, several children survived. I think it's also important to remember at the time, we took young men, 17, 18 years old, sent them to South Vietnam. Many of them had never traveled at all. When they got there on a private's pay, they could afford a hooch, which is what we would consider a house, and a woman would stay there, keep their bed warm, do all the shopping, and keep the place clean. The Asian children are still an issue as they have been discriminated, not from that time, but are discriminated again today. And now we're looking at generational issues.
2: Yeah. Andrew, uh, Dr. Bowl, uh, there, there is another piece of his career that we could mention. Uh, he became the senior pastor of one of the Prominent churches in the denomination fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago Um, Do any of you know that church have any of you been there? Uh, It's a it's a pretty impressive uh, Church sitting right on the million-dollar mile the Miracle Mile in downtown Chicago Right across the street from the John Hancock Tower fourth Presbyterian Church it takes up a whole city block and I've heard people say that that it may be the most expensive property in North America that a Presbyterian church sits upon Uh, and he was the senior pastor there oh what dates are we gonna say late 80s to maybe about the year 2000 or a little bit longer big staff there. I've I've worshipped there maybe a half dozen times in my life. I find myself going there anytime I'm in Chicago. They have programs every day of the week, noontime services, concerts, and and recitals just about every noonday. It's quite a place in the summer. And one little feature that they, they have in that church, it's a very long, deep sanctuary from the the doors on the sidewalk to the altar and their ushers uh... at one time were in morning coats tails down to their knees and would take you all the way to the front you didn't have the presbyterian option of sitting in the back (laughs) they intercepted you and took you to the front so they could fill in from the front instead of from the back like most of us do in presbyterian churches um, I don't know if they're still wearing these morning coats but but that was a tradition for a lot of years and they still may be doing it I'm not sure but but it's a it's a fine edifice beautiful architecture and sitting on a, a very expensive piece of property there in the middle of Chicago
0: the other end of the Spectrum would be this very plain structure that has wooden benches that face each other in the Quaker tradition. Worth mentioning, the site of this Quaker meeting house is on a parcel of land that was belonged to a first purchaser. Young family came over from Wales. The wife was pregnant and in fact gave birth about six weeks after arriving to the woodland in 1682. However, between arrival and the birth of their third child, their uh, eldest child, who was four, died suddenly, as infants do, or young children do, or did then. And the family wanted her buried in consecrated ground, so they donated... Five acres of their purchase to the site uh, for a cemetery and ultimately the erection of a Quaker meeting and that's why this is where it is because uh, the young girl named catherine was was buried there at her mother's insistence In November of 1980, uh, both Berrigan brothers, uh, as well as six other folks, broke into a general electric facility um, that fashioned nose cones for nuclear warheads, as well as satellites for the Defense Department. Um, They took uh, pig's blood with them and poured the blood over the nose cones. And they also got papers out of somebody's office and strewed them around were quickly arrested and were charged once again with civil disobedience as well as breaking and entering. Um, it was a bit of a show trial, and I don't believe that they saw any time for that. Uh, Philip is still alive, but Daniel yes, Philip is still alive, but Daniel's passed on. Um, but for the rest of their, their careers, they were activists, uh, usually uh, very much acting on their, their conscience as they saw it. Um, in trying to uh, turn our our nation and our energies uh, from war. And I, I would be willing to bet that uh, for those here that remember them at all, that there might be you know, strong opinions on, on either side of supporting uh, their activities or disagreeing with them. For me, I was a little bit young, but um, certainly uh, the the fervor with which they lived their lives was something that I found unusual when I encountered them. And I met Philip in the two thousands. Um, he was in North Jersey for something, and he was the cause celeb. You know, he, he, if you wanted. To get arrested with somebody at a protest, he was always a good person. I was told to get arrested with, so.
3: <laughs> I guess what disturbs me about this is we have this, you know, and, and you've done a very good job of outlining the the strong. History that we have with freedom of religion and freedom of, you know, freedom to be who we are in this country. But yet we have, we struggle with that every single day still at this point in our lives and yeah. of our nation. And people seem to not know the history, not realize it, not care about it. It's just that, I guess that's disturbing to me, and we need to make sure that. We do what we can to make sure that people understand we do have this history and this is important.
4: Why, why do you think that
3: is?
0: Do do that well, but, I, I don't know. I'd like to hear why do you think people have an
3: Well, part of, part of what I think about it is that nobody learns about it. I mean, it's not it's not something that seems to be important to, to teach anymore for kids to know? I, I don't know if that's
5: it. I, I, And they did not pay me big wages. I did not earn much money. She worked there at less than what I worked there. And people would mouth off to her because she was Chinese. Now she speaks in English. She knows she's extremely bright, So she can teach beautifully. And yet she is still um, discriminated against. She is still treated like half a human being. And she's been here since my daughter's 32. So she's mm-hmm. been here 30 years. Mm-hmm. And she still is um, not treated like an American, an intelligent, right human being.
0: To, to Dan's question. if oh, oh, it, I, it, I know. Ab- absolutely. And, and before more seriously, going to, to Dan's open question. A bit comically, if you will, more than six times in New York City with my wife, who was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, but otherwise has dark hair and looks... Asian, or South Asian, at least six times, the cab driver, when we've gotten into the back, has asked, where are you from? to her, before they've asked, where are we going? Now, nobody's ever asked me where I'm from. Oh well. Um, but, the, more seriously, the, in part, yes, w- there's an absence of information in, in the content of what we pass on, but there's also there's no effort there's no fighting for these freedoms that we have to go through today I mean we're, we're handed them and we just take them for granted whereas for those who are coming from abroad those who are coming from uh, regions where it is not something that is enshrined in their founding documents uh, that they, they have a more precious uh, relationship with it. I just wanted to, to Talk about accomplishment that uh, Ba Nguyen went on to a career with Boeing out in Seattle uh, before he retired. So I just thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, yes, Fred. Response to Dan's question
1: reminds me of a comment of my political science professor in college. He wrote a book on the, separ- on the school prayer cases and it was very much his contention that the vast majority of our society does not really understand the co- our Constitution and particularly the Bill of Rights. Now although that may in part be a fault of our educational system historically where the basis of that l- lies but a lot of people have a lot of incorrect
0: misinformation, misunderstanding, and, and what that document it, says. It, it in, it in our really layman's understanding it. of the Constitution, that the language does not say separation of church and state. It's the Establishment Clause, the Congress shall make no law a step, uh, regarding the establishment of religion. There's another half to that. You got sorry, the attorney yeah, no. coming out of here. There's two parts to that. No establishment and no prohibition. And in, in the Constitution before you get to the Bill of Rights, there's only one mention of God, and that's in taking an oath uh, for federal office.
2: I guess uh, in relationship to this uh, idea of, of our people not knowing the history is the rewriting of history
0: to fit your own political viewpoints, and the sanitizing of history is, e- to me, of even greater concern. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to, to that point, realizing that folks like the Berrigan brothers can be divisive in the moment and, and even in people's remembrance of them. I included them because I figured that they would trigger some memories and prompt some discussion because, by and large, we've put that part of our history in the rearview mirror and that our, our current president and probably all our future presidents um, won't have that as an imprint on their lives. And yes, our Secretary of State and our Secretary of Defense uh, both served with distinction, and so they carry with it th- that primal memory as they're serving their current duties, but for my generation and those to follow, it's a lesson forgotten or l- never learned. Sue Campbell?
6: Thank you. Had an interesting experience going... the. L- clergy academy in Worcester in probably the eighties, nineties, nineties, and Daniel Berrigan was there and talking about such things. So at the end, I was hearing all kinds of things that were interesting, and I said, would you, would you define meek for me? <laughs> Here's a perfect description or, de- or definition of passive not pacifism. Hmm. And um, afterward, I didn't say anything, afterward someone came up to me and said, thank you for asking the question, because he says meekness is like a horse who is bridled and saddled and waiting attentively for the direction of the rider, the master. And that should be the definition, that is the definition of meekness. And uh, arrogance was passivism rather than active. Even though he acted like an activist, his mm-hmm. description was um, passive, which is not a good thing. Because along with passive comes aggressive.
1: Right. Uh, I just want to warn you one thing. You say one thing about uh, not everybody that asks uh, Where are you from? uh, (laughs) Is prejudice? Oh no, no, no! No. Because I have a very strong interest in looking at a person and see what ethnic group they are and from where. Right, and 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 I'm liable to ask them right there in the in the cab cab, also.
0: Well, these cab drivers were themselves Pakistani or or Indian, and and actually to touch in or tie back to what we're we're talking about, that their question. you know, who are you and where are you from, was, does she understand her own personal journey, her own personal history? And for her, you know, it's a a blank slate that starts with her dad um, here in America. Um, So just like we are trying to look back across the generations and put it in some kind of context that these cab drivers who, wondering, hey, is she available, Um, but we're also... Prodding her to to understand, okay, before your dad, where does your 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 story begin? Yes.
4: Sure. I I sure. Um, I, I, uh, I just missed the the draft. I turned eighteen the year that the the draft ended for Vietnam. Um, my recollection of conscientious objection at the time was, uh, you know, Cassius Clay changing his name to Muhammad Ali and claiming that he was a, a, a Muslim to to avoid the draft. Um, but many of my friends were, um, you know, considering their options mm-hmm. to avoid Vietnam um, for other reasons and uh, including you know, leaving the country, um, and I'd just be interested if, if I missed that discussion. Sure. Uh, but, but I mean, particularly uh, true conscientious objection on grounds of opposing war uh, for religious
0: reasons. And if you can imagine, as America was entering World War I, and we didn't get into that today, but. The, the war in Europe is already happening. The American Expeditionary Force is now being constituted. I believe it's in 1918. And two students at Harford College, which is a Society of Friends Quaker school, two of them, with the encouragement of one of the philosophy professors there, when they are drafted, they state that they are conscientious objectors. They are brought to federal trial in Philadelphia and found guilty and they are sentenced. And even after the war, even after the armistice, they were still in prison because, on religious grounds, they were going against the grain. Now, come 1941, there was maybe a little bit more allowance for secondary roles for those who found war objective. And in fact, beginning with the American Expeditionary Force in World War I that the Society of Friends came up with the American Friends Service Committee, which provided medical uh, supplies and ambulances and otherwise served those in need, irrespective of what side of the line they were on, and they were later honored with the uh, Nobel Peace Prize in, I think, 1948. Um, But whether it's 1918, 1941, 1970, that it is a subject that will be revisited, sadly, again and again, um, given the nature of how nations interact, and whether we want to think about it in the moment during a lull, or whether it's going to be at, at a hot moment uh, for our society when it next gets uh, front of brain, um, it's something that we ought to pay more attention to, and ideally, as set forth in our our, our founding documents. Uh, accord those divergent points of view with the respect that that we would wish to receive ourselves. Andrew,
2: let me make a couple announcements. One week from today is Easter Sunday. We have no class planned that day. Two weeks from today, Esther Wakeman, and you'll read this in today's Sunday worship bulletin, Esther Wakeman, Presbyterian missionary in Thailand, will be here preaching both services and also leading this class. That's two weeks from today. Three weeks from today, our own Dan Moretta is going to do a presentation, and I'll just call it on the general subject of Christian economics. He's changed it, okay, what would... Okay, well will do you want to tell us what the change is or we'll just wait? something in the truth category so come three weeks from today and we will learn something in the truth category four weeks from today uh, we are going to host some ladies including I think the pastor's wife from the Pine Ridge uh, reservation I think they are going to also lead worship that day and they're going to lead this class that's four weeks from today Five weeks from today, Dr. Keith Lloyd from Kent State University, who's done a couple series for us on the Bible as history and literature, he will be here for the one final Sunday of this season. He did three weeks for us in, in January, and this will be his fourth week. We had a scheduling conflict, and we were unable to have him four straight weeks in January. Following that, we will we'll have uh, John David Guybe, Dr. John David Guybe for a six-week series, basically taking us the, the four Sundays of May and the first two Sundays of June, and that will take us to our summer schedule, whatever that is going to be. So we have those, those weeks coming up. Just a second, Jerry. Now, Andrew, thank you, number one, for being such a scholar. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and <clears throat> we, we have profound respect for your research and your facility in presenting it. Uh, you know, you carry this all around in your own hardwired hard drive, and, and that's impressive in itself. And, and we appreciate your willingness to do this. You did a series for us last year. This is now a, a, a series f- uh, that you've done for us this year, four straight weeks. Anything that any Presbyterians do twice becomes a permanent institution. <laughs> so, so stand by for updates on, on Andrew's next presentation. Jerry.